On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Tanya Mosley with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, comedian Leslie Jones. In her new memoir, she writes about being on Saturday Night Live and the years she spent working odd jobs to get by before becoming famous, including a justice of the peace. She once told a judge she knew her lines by heart. He was like, you actually don't know about art because you're saying awfully wedded husband and awfully wedded wife. And I was like, that's... That's what it that's is, what right? It is, right? Yeah. And he was like, it's lawfully. Also, award-winning actor, producer, and activist Carrie Washington. She's written a new memoir titled Thicker Than Water, where she examines her life, career, and the discovery of a secret about her origins that her parents revealed to her just a few years ago. And Ken Tucker reviews Allison Russell's new album. Don't you know, don't you know, don't you know you are never alone? That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most on It's Been a Minute from NPR. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas. We've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Tanya Mosley. When comedian and actress Leslie Jones joined the cast of Saturday Night Live in 2014, she held the distinction of being the oldest person to ever join the cast at 47 years old. But that detail might just be the least interesting thing about her. Jones was on Saturday Night Live for five seasons, first as a writer and then as a cast member. She became known for her hilarious weekend update reports, as well as her outrageous sketches playing everyone from Whoopi Goldberg to Donald Trump. In her new memoir, simply titled Leslie F. and Jones, I can't say the actual word on the radio, Jones makes clear that she's no overnight success. For years, she worked odd jobs to get by while doing comedy shows everywhere. In the book, Jones also shares details of her life that she's never spoken about before. Her life growing up as a military brat, working comedy clubs in a male-dominated field, and the mistakes and lessons she learned along the way. Leslie Jones was nominated for three Primetime Emmy Awards for her work on Saturday Night Live. In 2016, she starred in Ghostbusters, and in 2021, she starred opposite Eddie Murphy in Coming to America for which she won an MTV Movie and TV Award. Leslie Jones, welcome to Fresh Air. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta love when a conversation starts with laughing. Yeah, because I was just like, wow, that's so crazy. When she's reading the credits, I was just like, I went back to sitting in my living room and thinking, oh, God, how long am I going to have to do this until somebody realizes that I'm actually funny? I know. Yeah. How many moments did you have like that? A I mean, billion. Yes. A billion. Like it's because I knew I was funny. I knew I was funny and I knew that they didn't know what I was. They knew that I was an entity. They just did not know. And up until I got SNL, nobody really knew what to really do with me. And everybody trusts me. They tried. But what the problem was is that I knew what I was, but I didn't tell them because I felt like they wouldn't get it. You are undeniably funny. But you. <laughs> when you were young, and I'm talking like when you were young, young, comedy wasn't something you saw yourself 
being in. Like you, you yeah, saw it as silly. like Richard Pryor, but you didn't see yourself in Richard Pryor. No, no, I was, I was a funny kid. I, I, every time I meet somebody from the past, they go, "Yeah, you was crazy. You was like a little fun." But I never thought of myself as funny. I thought of, as myself as just like I just like to have fun, and I was emulating a lot of comics that I would watch. You mm-hmm. know. Um, so uh, when when it came down to it, like, and my friend entered me in the contest, I was like, I'm not a comic. I I, I always thought I was going to be an actress. That yeah. the one day that I would I would um, play Whoopi Goldberg, like I would play a comic. I never thought I would be a comic. Yeah. So your yeah. friend entered you in this contest, Colorado State University. You were a freshman. Yeah. So this contest was the funniest person on campus contest. And you say that the moment you picked up the mic, you walked on the stage, it was like a religious experience. I can't even explain it more than when I grabbed the mic, I just remember thinking, I've been doing this forever already. Like, oh, my God, this fits like a glove. It's almost like putting on a shirt and going, oh, God, this shirt fits. It, It almost felt like I saw a line leave from the mic and just went out. And it was like, oh, that's the path I'm taking. It, it it was like I had already been doing it and didn't know I had been doing it. It was just so natural. And then when you were 19, a young Jamie Foxx mm-hmm. was the headliner for this club called The World. The World, uh, with Magic Johnson used to own, own The World. It was back in the day, back okay. in the day, like 87. So Jamie blew you away, and so you were like, I'm going to blow Jamie away. Well, I was, well, first it was like, Jamie, when Jamie started performing, I was like, oh, there's other comedians other than Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor and Whoopi Goldberg who know how to do this type of comedy because it's a certain type of comedy. It's it's a, a very, um, when you could take from your life and then you could make someone just be right there or you could just relate. I was like, he's performing like this. And I'm like, oh my God. So that means that I can learn how to do this then. So my friend that was with me, she, she was, you know, uh, knew the promoter and she, I told her to go and like hook up with the promoter, do whatever you got to do so we can, so I could talk to Jamie Foxx. So we all went to Fat Burgers. We all went to Fat Burgers and we was waiting on our burgers and Jamie was over there and I think I flirted with him at first, but because I was like, okay, if, if that's what it's going to take for me to find out what I need to, if you think I'm cute, then I'm definitely going to try to talk to you. But he didn't. He was like, he didn't. I don't know. Didn't think I was cute or whatever. He just was like, you were young and he knew I was 19. So he was like, he was like, you 19. He was like, of course you wasn't funny. He was like, you ain't got nothing to talk about yet. He was like, he was like, in the stuff that you're talking about, you're not funny enough yet to talk about it. He was like, so you just up there doing jokes. He was like, go live. He was like, he was like, go live. Go, go uh get jobs, go get fired, go get hired, go quit, go break hearts, go get your heart broken, go, go and live. Go live. Go live so you can have something to talk about. So I I just remember. Going. You went to live. I went and lived. So for six years, yep. after meeting Jamie Foxx. That was in 87. You quit comedy, essentially. Or you didn't quit, but you like went to go I, live. I, I went to go live. But I'm telling you, at the root of every job I would get, everything I would be assigned to, I would be like, this is temporary. I always went in a temporary because I was like, this is not, I'm going to be a comic. I'm going to be a comic. This is just until I'm a comic. Leslie, we have to go through some of the um, jobs you held. Okay. For a hot minute, you were a justice of the peace. Yeah, I married people. <laughs> I married people, and I was I was really good at it. I, I actually was good at it because I'm funny. But my the, <laughs> when I first started, the judge pulled me into the office, and he was like, hey, are you reading the card when you're doing the ceremony? I was like, no, nah, I know it by heart. He was like, you actually don't know it by heart <laughs> because you're saying awfully wedded husband and awfully wedded wife. And I was like, that's, that's what it that's is, what right? It is, right? Yeah. And he was like, it's lawfully. <laughs> And please read from the car. And I was like, well, you know, awfully is pretty funny. He just, he just looked, I know he wanted to laugh, but he was just like, Leslie, please go and do it the right way. And then from there, they're like, all right, let's move her to the annulment office. And then all the people I married, literally most of them came in and got an annulment. (laughs) So I was like, I guess the awfully and the lawfully was true. I guess I did jinx y'all mess. So, you know. (laughs) What I want to know, though. Jeez. 
you worked for Scientologists. Yes, I did. Twice. I had two jobs with Scientologists. Because they own Glendale. You, if you, I mean, you, you don't work in Glendale without working for some Scientologists. Right, which is right outside of Los yeah. Angeles. So what they do is they buy a lot of businesses. They have a lot of businesses. I guess that's how they bring a lot of money to their thing, or I don't know what it is. What but, were you doing for them? Well, the first job that I had for them was uh, with the Doring Company. And I remember because I used to always had to write it on this uh, little um, survey because that's what they did with surveys. Like if you bought a car and somebody called you and it'd be like, yeah, we'd like to ask you how your car was. You were the person I calling. I was that person calling. So you get money for that. So, and it was a good paying job. I, I remember it, it, you know, pay the rent. And uh, I lived right around the corner from there. And um, they loved me because I was very enthusiastic. I was very, I would come in, you know, I have an energy. I would come in and, you know, just be happy and everybody be happy to be at work or whatever. And they was always trying to hat me. That's what they call it, hat you. When they want you to join and then they want to move you up. They want to make you feel important and stuff. So I remember the lady. She was moving me up in the office, which I didn't mind. I liked doing the surveys because when she came at me like this, I went back to doing surveys, but she was trying to move me up, but she kept saying, hat me. I want to hat you. I want to hat you. And I was like, what is that hat stuff? What is that? And she was like, oh, you know, in the Scientology words, whoop, 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 whoop. and I was like, nah, I want to go back to surveys because I'm a Christian. You're, you let them know. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I don't know what y'all believe in. No. So then I went and worked for a construction company and they were a family deal. And I didn't really like being around them either because I always felt like they was going to kidnap me. I don't know why. <laughs> so I went and looked for another Scientology because there was a billion of them in Glendale. Well, look, you definitely took Jamie's advice as far I as went, that's concerned. Girl, please. Yes. I went and had a life. My guest is Leslie Jones. She's written a new memoir about her life and career in comedy. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. And Ken Tucker will review Allison Russell's new album. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. The Bullseye Podcast is, according to one journalist, the, quote, kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. So make your world more perfect. Every week, Bullseye puts the pop in culture, interviewing brilliant authors, musicians, actors, and novelists to keep you on your pop culture target. Listen to the Bullseye Podcast, only from NPR and Maximum Fun. Numbers that explain the economy. We love them at The Indicator from Planet Money. And on Fridays, we discuss indicators in the news, like job numbers, spending, the cost of food, sometimes all three. So my indicator is about why you might need to bring home more bacon to afford your eggs. I'll be here all week. Wrap up your week and listen to The Indicator podcast from NPR. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. Let's get back to my interview with comedian and actor Leslie Jones. She's written a new memoir about her life and rise to fame. Jones was nominated for three primetime Emmy Awards for her work on SNL. In 2021, she starred opposite Eddie Murphy in Coming to America, for which she won an MTV Movie and TV Award. Last January, she was the first guest host of The Daily Show after the departure of Trevor Noah. Leslie Jones also stars in the HBO Max series Our Flag Means Death. Leslie, you really like physical comedy. Yeah. Lucille Ball, for instance, yeah. taught you that you can't just be happy or sad with your, you know, you can't just like show emotion ha- or happy yeah. or sadness. You got to show it in your face. Well, you just be it. I remember being in an audition because I was in a Martin Lawrence movie and the director, I remember I was auditioning. He was like, Leslie, you don't have to act mean. He was like, you could just be it because you got that face that your emotions is going to come across your face. And Lucille Ball and Carol Burnett uh, um, Melissa McCarthy, too. Like, very good. Very, the face. Just face. Like, that's the one thing I, I want to learn is that. 
You know, I heard Jim Carrey and, of course, we know Jerry Lewis talk about, though, like the physical toll of physical comedy, like literally on your body. What about for you? Do you feel it? Well, you know what's so weird? Like, I played basketball since I was in sixth grade. I didn't start getting injured until I started doing stage stuff and started uh, at SNL and all that. I think those were my my injuries, like, like just because you give it all. Like, to me, John Ritter. Is one of the best. Physical. Wait, can I just say? Yes, I don't think I've. Ever, you wrote about him in the book. I don't think I've ever met anyone else who describes that feeling that you feel for John Ritter. I feel that too. It's I, like a comfort. He brings a comfort. It's it's so he. I hate that. That's one person I never got to meet because when I say that man would fall over a couch and I would die laughing because there's no one else who could do that. That jerk thing that he would do. He would do this. He would just. It was just such good movements. And then John Ritter went on to Buffy the Vampire Slayer and played the malfunction robot and won an Emmy for I was like, just just like artistry, you know, mm-hmm. Buster Keaton. It's just a physical thing. Like I always tell everybody, don't try to reinvent comedy. Comedy is all its own entity. You, you're just like you're trying to reinvent the wheel. The wheel will always be round. It needs to be. You know what I'm saying? So, so just try to just learn the tricks and make them yours. Like slipping on a banana will always be funny, and I don't care what nobody say. Slipping on a banana will always, always be, be funny. One of the funniest physical jokes. But ever. it's really interesting. You playing basketball from sixth grade. You went to college to play basketball, yeah. and I feel like that feels like that's really physical. And it's also you're running, like you're. I didn't but never it's re- not, injure myself. What is yeah. it about like just because, being in because that? Because you because you love it. Like I didn't love basketball like that. I wasn't gonna I'd throw myself. I wasn't gonna do all of that. But comedy. If I'm trying to get a joke across, oh yeah, I'm a, I may twist my knee. I may. Like I didn't fell off stages, I didn't fell off tables, I didn't fell off chairs. I've I've just it's just a real it does take a toll on, especially when you start getting older and start forgetting. But okay. let me tell you something about the joy of watching physical comedy. If you do it right, people love you because you don't forget that physical move. You don't forget the dancing, you don't forget that. Especially if you're there live and watching them do that. It is magnificent. I love physical comedy. Do you treat your body differently now? I oh, saw in your last special you had yeah, on like baby. a brace on your leg. Well, <laughs> it's so weird, girl. Let me tell you the stages that you go through, not only as a comic but as a woman. When I first started comedy, I thought I had to be sexy. I used to wear heels on stage. I, I used to that. do yes. I used to wear the splits and all of that. And then, you know, you, at the end of it, I'm sweaty and maybe the makeup didn't all melted on me. You look gross. So it's like, and then too, this is why I tell women, don't be afraid to be yourself. Because see, when you, it, it, there's women who can go dressed up on stage, then do your thing. But this is what happens when you walk on stage. The first thing that happens is a woman look at you and they go, oh, does she think she cute? And then they look at their man and they go, does my man think she cute? All that's happening while you're trying to open up. Yeah. So I always say in your first couple of years, T-shirt, jeans, tennis shoes. If you can make it lovely and cute, do that because you don't have to prove you're a woman. And listen, you can do whatever you want. I'm telling you, as far as I've been doing this a long time, I know what that's doing. Okay, there's um, something that lives rent-free in my head, and it's something that you said Cat Williams told you, that once you get rid of your desperation, you're going to blow up. What did he mean by that? Man, okay, so at the time when he said we was on tour, and I was just very frustrated. I was just like, I don't know why I ain't blown up yet. Like, this person ain't blown up, this person ain't blown up. But I always try to not try to look at other people's blow up because they should blow up, you know. But I was just like, dang, if they like her, why they don't like me, you know. If they like her, why they don't like me, you know. What am I doing wrong? We all do that. You know, it's like, yeah, Yeah. what am I doing wrong? Like, I got to get this, you know. I was like, why ain't I making it and stuff. And damn, I'm like, I'm broke. Like, uh, think about Tom Hanks and Punchline. Like, at that moment when they was going to pick somebody else, and he was like, nah, I'm not going to wait a year. I need to make it now. That is some real, like, that's hard. Like, every time I see that scene, I'll be like, oh, oh, that's so real. But that's desperation. Mm. Do you do you get what I'm saying? Like, he was like, he was like, once you get rid of that desperation, you're going to blow up. And I was so angry at him. I was like, what do you mean? How can I not be desperate? I'm broke. 
I have no money. So how can I not be desperate? He was like, you don't have no money, but you're not desperate. You're talented. You have talent. You don't have an empty basket of tools. You just don't have no money. It like it, that's nothing. He said. He said. So now you're working from a different basket. He said you're working from a desperate basket. So now you're gonna do anything. You're gonna take any offer. You're gonna do anything to make it, and that's not gonna last. Yeah. Stop working from that desperation. You start. You start knowing that this is about. This is about, oh, no, this is not about me blowing up so I can get rich. This is about I want to be the best comic and I'm going to blow up because of that. The advice Jamie Foxx gave you about, like, living life, mm-hmm. being yourself, you have definitely, like, a catalog of stories now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got to I gotta ask you about one you've talked All about. Them, baby. You've talked about this one a lot already over the last few years. But there's an element of it that I, I want to just talk with you about. So... You met somebody on Match.com. Oh, yeah. You sent them nudes, and then the FBI was involved over it because you're famous by now. Like, this is like your face. Which is so funny that you're not smart enough to know that you're famous. No, but wait, you know what's so funny about that? I started dating someone a little bit after that. And I sent him a nude, and he literally, Again? he literally sent me back the text, You ain't learned yet. <laughs> The thing I want to ask you about, so the FBI was involved. Right. It was a whole thing. Oh, my God. Because you sent this person nudes, and then they were like, we're going to use this against you. TMZ even called you and was like. Yeah, well, what happened was they got Homeland Security involved, and then the FBI got involved, and they took over. And instead of them just taking my computer, they made me send what it is I sent to the dude. So you sent nudes again. And then but so to the whoever FBI. was hacking yeah. me, because the Ghostbuster stuff was going on too, and I was fighting against that. So whoever was hacking me was just trying to hack me because dude from Twitter was like, they are on your account. And like, just, they to, to protect just to, me. so the audience yeah. knows, with the Ghostbuster stuff, yeah. you were starring in Ghostbusters and you were getting a lot of hate on I was on getting a lot of hate already. It. So it was just like in the midst of all of that happening. So I know it was just super hackers going, we're going to get her, whatever, you know, whatever. They went into the email because they got. Got my passport, they got my ID, and then they got the nudes. So I woke up to a phone call from the chick from TMZ, the black girl. And I hope you're listening because I will <laughs> never forgive you. I will never forgive you because she calls my phone and she goes, hey, do you know that your nudes and your passport and your ID is up on? And I looked at the number and I was like, who is this? Oh, this is so-and-so, so-and-so from uh, TMZ. And I was like, well, how did you get my number? Did you use the number? And she was like, well, I'm just trying. I was like, you ain't trying to help. And I hung up. Mm. And I called my publicist. And my publicist had it down in 20 minutes. But 20 minutes is like 20 days on the internet. So you got hacked in addition to being threatened by this person you met on Match.com. And so then you put together a sketch for the Emmys and for Weekend Update. Yes, yes. So after all the hacking and all that stuff happened, we were like, you know, And me, I was just like, I'm not going to play the victim. I'm not a victim. This is not a victim. This is me being harassed by some disgusting actor that went into my private thing. So they wanted me to play victim, and I'm not a victim. I've refused to play a victim because that means that you don't have control of nothing about me. You want to see me naked? Ask. That's what it's about. So when the Emmys hit me, I was like, this is the perfect sketch to do with the accountants. Like, y'all got this in the suitcase. I need to put my Twitter account in there. And, you know, that was the whole gist of it. Now, when I got back to um, to yeah. Weekend Update, you know, I am that person that's going to address it. And I really, really was about, like, if you wanted to see me naked, ask. I have a trove of pictures I can send you. <laughs> and they way better quality than the ones that got hacked. You know, and I, I the whole thing that was a preaching about is like no one else has the power to come and break you. The only person that can break you is you. Hmm. Don't give nobody else that power. You've worked so hard to get to where you are. Does success feel like you thought it would? Absolutely not. It's uh it's a no it's I t- I was just telling this to somebody Today, I was like, man, I used to sit on my gigs when I was with what nothing and was selling DVDs and stuff. I would sit, but after my gig, I would run to the front just to hug and sign stuff and be and get in touch with people. And 
I thought that when I got famous, that was going to be the my most favorite part was connecting with my fans. And and it is sometimes, but it is hard. It is very because I have to always tell myself, okay, you're, you're famous. Hey, you can't smack that person, man. You're famous. <laughs> hey, man, you can't curse that person out, man. You're famous. You know, now some things I break through. I'll be like, if I'm going to go to the Beyonce concert, I'm going to the Beyonce concert. It's right. happening. You know, y'all just going to have to deal with it. And I always try to do the Arsenio Hall, Magic Johnson uh, rule is to make yourself seen so much that people get used to seeing you so they don't attack you. Mm. And, and and a lot of people see me out all the time. I'm always at the gym. I'm always Ralph's. I'm always at the comedy store. And I act normal as hell. I don't shut stuff down. I don't send ahead. I try to be as normal as, as hell. I try to dress myself down. The mohawk was a big thing. I had to get rid of the mohawk because... The it was mo- too much of a it was, signature. It was yeah. all... I mean, and people... Like, I could be with Keenan and they would not know Even see Keenan Thompson. Keenan, they yeah. have asked Keenan take pictures and they look and go, oh my God, Keenan. Yeah, like it's just a thing. You're a six foot tall, smiling black woman with a mohawk. Of They're going to recognize you. So I had to calm that down. It's a lot of things, you know, but I refuse to be trapped in my house. I'm not that type of star. Leslie Jones, thank you. Thank you for being you. Thank you for this book. Just thank you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Leslie Jones is a comedian and author of a new memoir. The singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist Allison Russell spent years in various bands, including Birds of Chicago and Our Native Daughters. In those groups, as well as in her solo work, she pushes past genre boundaries of R&B, folk, soul, country, and pop music— Russell calls her new album, The Returner, an articulation of rhythm, groove, and syncopation. Our rock critic, Ken Tucker, says it's absorbing and dynamic. That's Alison Russell casting out the demons in her life in what must be one of the most deceptively jaunty exorcisms ever. That song called Demons is typical of the tone of The Returner, Russell's startling sophomore album following her 2021 debut, Outside Child. That first album managed to make stirring music out of the harrowing details of Russell's youth as a survivor of sexual abuse and homelessness. On this follow-up, Russell sets herself a different task— to write songs about a more uplifting adulthood. So long farewell and do I do So long farewell and do I do To that tunnel I went through To that tunnel I went through And my reward, my recompense My reward, my recompense Springtime of my present tense Springtime of my present tense Die young to be consumed. Our bags were violent. Those winters of my discontent. So long farewell. All lullabies were violent, Russell sings in that song, Springtime, which, as the title suggests, is ultimately about a time of fresh beginnings, a rebirth a coming into the light after what she calls that tunnel I went through. This album, The Returner, is frequently as upbeat and celebratory as her previous collection was dark and foreboding.
Russell recorded The Returner with an all-woman band that includes Brandy Carlisle, as well as Wendy Malvoin and Lisa Coleman, best known as Wendy and Lisa, the duo that backed Prince and had their own solo career. In the liner notes, Russell makes a point of saying that she recorded this album in the same Los Angeles studio where Joni Mitchell recorded Blue and where Carole King cut Tapestry. This tells you a lot about her mindset. She's measuring her new work against some of the greatest singer-songwriter confessional songs of all time. Goodbye so long, farewell all i be That's the title song of The Returner. Over the course of this album, Russell makes a kind of rhythm and blues that mixes gospel with soul. She frequently uses Lisa Coleman's piano playing as the organizing instrument around which she builds her vocals and melodic hooks. The collection is full of funk and grooves and surprises and ambition. On the centerpiece of the album, a six-minute composition called Eve Was Black, Russell picks up her banjo and plucks out a version of the blues to sing about enslavement and a furious freedom. I did try to touch my hand Do you hope to find a blessing there? I did try to keep me down Do you hope to sow this barren ground? With my black blood, black magic blood, with my black blood, black magic blood, do I remind you of what you lost? Do you hate it? Do you lust? Do you despise it? Do you yearn to return, to return, to return? Back to the motherland, back to the garden, back to your black skin. Back to the innocence, back to the shine you lost when you enslaved your kids. Alison Russell's album titles are self-descriptions. Once she was the outside child, now she's the returner. Returning, that is, to the scenes of emotional crimes committed and, if not solved, thoroughly investigated, without self-pity or sentimentality which has now led to an artistic liberation that sounds, in song after song, positively exhilarating. Ken Tucker reviewed Alison Russell's new album, The Returner. Coming up, actor Carrie Washington. Her new memoir is about her career as an award-winning performer and the discovery of a secret she learns as an adult about her origins. This is Fresh Air Weekend. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened, we tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes. On the Code Switch Podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. Five years ago, in 2018, 
actor, producer, and activist Kerry Washington had an opportunity to appear on the popular PBS series Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates. It was a dream for Washington to learn more about her ancestors, and at first, her parents were excited too. But when they learned the show would need to examine their DNA, it set off a cascade of events leading to revelations about Carrie's origins. In her new memoir, Carrie Washington takes us on a journey of self-discovery. She takes us through her life, growing up in the Bronx as the only child of Valerie and Earl Washington, her acting career, and activism. Washington is known for her role as Olivia Pope in the hit series Scandal, which ran for seven seasons on ABC. She also starred as Mia Warren in the Hulu series Little Fires Everywhere, both shows receiving Emmy nominations. Washington also portrayed Anita Hill in HBO's Confirmation. In her latest role in the Hulu series Unprisoned, Washington plays Paige Alexander, a therapist and single mom whose fresh-out-of-prison dad, played by Delroy Lindo, moves in with her and her teenage son. The name of Carrie Washington's new memoir is Thicker Than Water. Carrie, welcome back to Fresh Air. Thank you. Let's get into the revelation that they shared with you. So this opportunity to be on Finding Your Roots came at this right time in your life. Scandal was ending and you were shedding the identity of Olivia Pope, which had become so popular. And your parents were also initially excited at the idea of you being on Finding Your Roots, too, until they found out that they needed to share their DNA. Your parents finally sat down and shared something that they'd been withholding your entire life. What did they share? So for anybody who's listening who wants to not know (laughs) when you're reading the book, um, as you said, there's lots of revelations, but this is the big one. So if you want to tune us out and and (laughs) listen after you read the book, now's your moment. Um, But my parents shared with me that my dad, my beloved dad, is not my biological father and that, um, that I was born from a sperm donor. At a time in the 70s where there were no sperm banks, there were no, you know, so many of my girlfriends now, we go through catalogs of, you know, who we want the sperm to come from, from eye color to academic degrees. But this was um, cloaked in a lot of secrecy and a spirit of experimentalism. It was like a new procedure that not a lot of people were due. It was considered risky and um and important to remain secret. And, and so that's what my parents did. You know, I was a very, very prayed for, wanted, loved child. And they went to any lengths to have me. And what you're so, saying there is important, though, an important point to make about the time period. As you mentioned, now um, artificial insemination is such a common thing. IVF is a common uh, thing. But, but back then, it, it wasn't. No, it was very uncommon. It was not talked about. There were only a handful of doctors in Manhattan who were willing to take on the procedure. My mother's um, OBGYN was one of them. And, you know, he said to them, you have two options, you know, having sort of examined both of my parents, again, after five long years of trying, he said, you have two options, you can either adopt or we can try this new thing called artificial insemination and it's very experimental and the you know it's it's not 100% guarantee um but we can give it a go and see if it works your father earl there was this feeling though that you still could be his biological daughter because the doctor also suggested something else so there was the procedure <laughs> but also in conjunction with the procedure he recommended your mom and dad go and try the the natural way too. Right, that they have intercourse, which was very common at the time. I mean, number one, when you engage in intercourse, it does ready a woman's body to conceive in a different way, right? So doctors will often say even now that it's not a bad idea to have intercourse after artificial insemination. Um, so weird to be talking about my parents in this way, in their bedroom culture. But, um, but also... It allowed, at the time, a level of plausible deniability, right? No one in 1977 thought, well, we'll be able to go and do a DNA test in 40 years and know exactly where she comes from. They thought, you know, do this procedure, go home and have sex, and then forget about it. Like, the kid is yours. It's yours. Um, And so that's what my parents did. And my dad very much adopted 
the reality that I am his and he is mine, that plausible deniability, I think in many ways became his absolute reality. You were born and raised in the Bronx. You were the only child of your parents. You lived this middle-class life. You attended great schools. You were part of a vibrant community, but way before this opportunity to be on Finding Your Roots and then this revelation from your parents, you had this faint sense that something was being withheld from you, and this feeling impacted your very being from a very young age. This is one of the most powerful parts of the book is your ability to articulate how you felt that they kept you at arm's length. It's funny because it's one of the things that, you know, when I got this news, I started to do deep dives of reading every article, every book about kids who were born from donor eggs or donor sperm or adopted and not told, like just kids whose origins had been mostly lovingly, but kept from them. And the thing that I identified with so much was this sense of unease, this sense that something is being kept from me and I don't know what it is, or something is wrong and I don't know what it is. And like a lot of kids and a lot of other people in this experience, I decided that something wrong often was me, that I must have been not good enough, not lovable enough, that this this gap between myself and my parents, which was a gap that could be designated to the fact of my inception, became this vague notion that I translated into emotional distance. And, and that may have been emotional distance. You know, sometimes I think about how I've had girlfriends throughout my life who who would say, like, I'm, my mother's my best friend and we talk every day. And I've always been close to my mother. And I, I mean, since the revelation, we're even more close. I, I am deeply, deeply, deeply grateful for what our relationship looks like today. Um, and we do talk so much more than we used to. But I, I didn't grow up feeling that kind of deep emotional transparency and intimacy with my mother. But looking back, I think, how could I have? She was keeping a secret from me that she could not reveal. So you can't be best friends with someone who you cannot tell the truth to. You know, acting played this pivotal role for you from the from the moment you were a young girl. I think sixth grade is when you discovered acting, participating in school plays. Younger, much younger. Even yeah. younger than that. Yeah. I would say five or six years old, probably. It sustained you because it allowed you to live through these characters that you were playing. Do you remember the first time you felt that feeling on stage that that you were almost in a way living, but living through another character, another person? Hmm. So I remember just the joy of being on stage and forgetting my real life. I loved to be on stage because when I was on stage, it required a level of focus that necessitated the day-to-day life to fall away. And I loved that. I mean, I remember feeling that way at seven years old, um, eight years old, like really young. I, I loved being able to get on stage and have the reality of the musical, whether it was Annie or the Velveteen Rabbit or the or Pinocchio, right? Like that those shows became my reality and I didn't have to deal with some of the other more painful thoughts or feelings that I was dealing with on a day-to-day basis at home or at school. So that was for me how theater started to save me was it really just gave me this respite, this place where I could be of singular focus on the reality of the play. And it's funny as I talk about it because I realize how similar that language is to how I described what my dad did. You know, when he got this information, go home, have sex, you'll have plausible deniability. And he made that deniability his truth That I think I, similarly to my dad, although I am not biologically his daughter, I don't know whether it's nurture or whether 
I, I, yeah, I don't know if it's learned or if just we have that in common separately. It's probably a combination of those ideas. But I, too, gravitate toward believing in alternate reality. I've made a career of it, this kind of escape into a world that's not true. But it's interesting as you grew older and you started to choose roles for yourself, there were elements of you in all of the roles that you chose. Yeah, yeah. And in a way that astounds me. I mean, I that was one of the fun things to write about in the book was how these different characters and the circumstances that they've been in have really been opportunities for me to express my unconscious at times. You attended the Spence School in New York, which is an elite private all-girls school. And I've heard you tell this story many times. You mentioned that Gwyneth Paltrow also attended Spence. Mm -hmm. The experience at Spence allowed you to see wealth up close in a way that you hadn't before. Um, And I find it interesting that you've said that um, that level of wealth and affluence, um, seeing it made you angry in a way because it almost Mm. felt like another secret. Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. It's funny because when we were filming Little Fires, there was this moment where the beautiful actress Lexi Underwood, who plays my daughter, walks into Reese Witherspoon's character's home for the first time. And um, some of my co-producers on set were saying, when she walks in, she should be awed and delighted at the magic of this perfect home versus her home. And I realized, oh, I have to explain this other dynamic, which is why do some people get to live this way and other people don't? Because I was awed and enamored with the the material wealth that these families had. But I also felt this very clear injustice that I was witnessing. I felt the pain of that injustice. And... And I felt angry that there were people who were living this way, and I couldn't have even imagined elevator doors opening up into an apartment. Do you know where I came from? And elevator doors opened, and there were like 12 apartments, and that's what an apartment building was. But for an elevator door to open up into one apartment that takes the entire floor, I felt obscene in some ways. And and I, so from a very young age, at 12 years old, I was grappling with the parts of my brain that thought that was aspirational and inspiring and the parts of my brain that thought that was awful and unfair and um, unjust. You were acting for several years by the time um, you started attending Spence. Um, As you mentioned, you started acting at like five years old. But you write about a visit to a casting director, an agent, Juliet Taylor, who uh, you were introduced to by someone from Spence, And this casting director was very enamored by you. And you write that, quote, I may have been a black girl from the Bronx, but I was also attending one of the most elite educational institutions in the country. Can you describe that feeling of knowing, even at that age, that you were not exactly one of them? You weren't affluent at white, but but as you put it, you knew you were an exceptional delight. How how did knowing you were an exceptional and wealthy white people's eyes, how did that impact your desire to be perfect? I don't know that I've ever asked about that direct connection before, but it's something that I live with all the time, as I imagine you do as well, in certain circumstances. I guess the first word that pops into my mind is pressure. That when we, as marginalized folks, get invited into rooms as the exception, as the only, as the first, as the one of just a few, there is a pressure to be able to meet the space, to meet the requirements and the cultural expectations of the spaces that we're being invited into and also to represent the spaces that we originate from with as much dignity, grace, and success as possible. So I do think that idea of being exceptional did reinforce this pattern 
and drive toward perfectionism that had been planted earlier on. You know, this book, above all else, as you have stated so well, is your journey to becoming a protagonist in your own story, putting the pieces of yourself together. And the book ends with you searching for your biological father. But it sounds like more than that, this revelation has opened up a portal of real connection, a deeper connection, even more than you had before with your parents. This was a relief for them. Yeah, I think there's... I'm watching my mother, you know, in particular, as I talk about in the book, having survived this round of cancer and with the revelations being shared publicly. She is, oh, she's such an inspiration to me because she is just so light and free and like in her truth and in her body. And I can tell that she has been able to let go of not only a secret that she's held on to for four decades, but all the shame around that secret and um, and the guardedness around it. And my dad, too, like it's a very different journey for him, um, different and difficult in different ways. Um, but as I say in the book, you know, one of the one of the things that occurred to me when I learned this truth is that, Every time I've ever told my dad that I love him, it has always been on the condition of a lie. And so consciously or unconsciously, there must there must have been some part of him that thought she loves me because she thinks I am her dad. And if she knew that I wasn't, maybe she That's wouldn't right. feel this way. Yeah. And so I have now... <sighs> I have now gotten the opportunity to love my dad unconditionally. And he has had the opportunity to feel what it feels like to be loved in vulnerability. Hmm. And there is, I can't even begin to articulate the value of that in our relationship and in our family. Carrie Washington, thank you so much for this book. Thank you for this conversation. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much. Carrie Washington is an award-winning actor, producer, and activist. Her new memoir is titled Thicker Than Water. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorak, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krinzel, Heidi Simon, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Nakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. On the Code Switch podcast... Conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR.